Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today we have a solo episode. I have some listener-inspired topics that we're going to hit on today. Those topics include going over the topic of insoles and orthotics, like how and when you should use those sort of things in your training and racing, what I consider kind of best practice, I guess, with those type of things, uh, if you need to use them, or if there's something that you should have as a tools, or if you should look at eliminating them altogether, we go over kind of the ins and outs of that. Uh, Also, vertical gain and loss. So a lot of folks in endurance sport these days are picking courses that have a lot of what they call climbing and descending. So what do you do with that? How do you prepare for that? And specifically, the question that came in about this was more along the lines of, do I need to or should I do this even if I'm preparing for a flatter race? So I look at kind of how I would maybe implement vert training into a plan. out the gate and then what type of modifications I would maybe make based on the personality of the runner, uh, just the unique needs of someone running as much as you're likely going to do if you're doing a long race uh, and things like that. So we talk a little about vert and where you should put that in your plan, regardless of whether you're doing mountain races, rolling hill trail races or flat tracks and roads and things like that. Uh, the third one was actually a really interesting one. A question came in about having a vacation, a week-long vacation that is going to limit or eliminate training potential during that time frame. Like, what do you do with that? How do you navigate your training plan when you still have that goal race on the calendar? If you have a situation like that, I brought in that one out a little bit because I wanted to touch on just the whole idea of these sort of interruptions happening in a training plan. Cause I think that's mostly part of life and will likely happen to all of us at times So what's the best path forward there? Can you even eliminate the negatives of that or the perceived negatives? Maybe we should say. So we dive into that topic a little bit as well. Uh, So that's that's this episode. Coming up on the show is uh, a few guests. I've got actually quite a few guests scheduled for August. But coming up and already on the show Patreon page right now is another solo episode that deals with pacing, tapering, and the most important workout for a hundred mile race. Uh, So that was a fun one to jump into from the pacing. Specifically, we looked at the marathon and then the hundred miler and tapering. We looked at kind of more for the hundred miler, but that one can probably be used a little more universally uh, with the information from that one. Also on the guest side on the Patreon page, I had Matt Kerr come on. Matt Kerr is a fellow S fuels athlete. So I got connected with him He just recently won the 30 to 34 year old age group world championship in St. George, Utah for the full Ironman. And he's only been at it for about four years. Background was in swimming, got into triathlon more recently, and he's been very promising. He also follows a low carbohydrate diet. It's called and coached by Grant Schofield, who helps him kind of navigate that. So we chatted about his training how he kind of lays that out, what it's like traveling from places like New Zealand and Australia to race in the United States when you're essentially like flipping your time zone, like by an almost entire day in some cases, how do you kind of navigate that as well as kind of how he 
maneuvers the varying training volumes and intensities and just his protocol in general with a lower carbohydrate approach? Where does he kind of use those carbohydrates strategically? So that was a fun chat. Those ones are all recorded up on Patreon. Coming up this month, I've got a couple episodes that we're going to dive into continuous glucose monitors and just that topic in general. I think obviously blood glucose measures and markers have been a topic that's been around for quite some time, but you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen more and more movement in these 24 seven devices. Essentially you can just, you, you, you place them, they, they, they get attached basically on the back of your tricep and they last for about two weeks and they will record the entirety of that time. So instead of having a snapshot, you can see your blood glucose uh, patterns throughout the entire day and weeks when you're wearing that. So I want to talk to a couple people who know what they're, what they're doing with that and find out kind of what are the promising elements to continuous glucose monitors? How are we being seeing them being used both medically as well as for health and even maybe athletics and things like that. So two guests coming on, uh, Kara Collier and then Taylor Sittler, they'll be two different episodes, but both of them are going to come on to chat about that specific topic. So we'll have a lot of info along continuous glucose monitors coming up. Also coming up shortly is Alan Argon. Alan has been someone who has been very well known within the nutrition space, big focus on protein, but I want to talk to him about a lot of things with kind of like structuring diet nutrition to the individual. Cause I think he is someone who is very open to the idea that people tend to respond differently from preferences and urges and things around food. So how do you kind of take what we know or think we know, and then meet the person where they're at and find the best path forward for them. Uh, so we're going to do maybe a little bit of a deeper dive into the protein side of things, but also the, his whole, his whole approach as well. Another guest I have on the schedule for the end of the month is Vinny Crispino, who is the founder of the Pain Academy. Very interesting story. He broke his back essentially, and then found a way to work himself back to eventually training for some ultra marathons, I believe. So we're going to dive into what he went through, how that led to Pain Academy, what kind of approaches did he use to find himself in a position where now he's able to do something like train for an ultra marathon after something like that occurring. Also working on getting a uh, Logan Delgado scheduled for this month, he will likely happen at some point there as well. So for those of you who are hanging out on the show, Patreon page, those first three I talked about are up there, including this one. And then those other ones I mentioned should be coming up over the course of the rest of this month. So for those of you interested in ad-free audio and supporting the podcast, the show Patreon page is a great way to do it. You do get access to early release episodes as well as ad-free audio versions of the show. If you're over there, you can find details for that as well as other support options for the show over at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. Uh, a few more announcements before we get rolling here. I live in Austin now, been here for a little over half a year and I had a very cool experience. I met with this group. Uh, they're called Alpha 180, and it is a transitional community where they work with young men who have had issues struggling with addiction over their life, and they are trying to turn things back around. So I sat down with those guys and pitched them an idea about starting a running club 
that would help us connect individuals who have come out the other end of that and are working on maintaining an addiction-free lifestyle and focusing on more healthy habits. And I always think running is a great option for something like that. So we are doing weekly group meetups at 8 a.m. on Sundays. So if you want to come and join us, hang out, go for a run, we have options from just simply walking, short two-mile run, four-mile run, six-mile run. I think we might eventually even add an eight-mile option in there. Uh, Everyone's welcome, regardless of what your background is. If you're a new runner, a moderately invested runner, or all in on running, uh, we we want as many people out there as we can get. We're trying to build a great community there. So that's 8 a.m. Sunday mornings. If you're in Austin, come check that out. If you're visiting Austin and you want to meet up, that's a great place to, to come hang out. We did our first one this last Sunday and had, I believe we had almost 40 people out there. I think it was like 38 or something like that. So we had a great turnout, all ability levels, even some stroller pushers too. So don't be shy. If you want to bring the kids along, we'll we'll have a route for you to be able to run and push a stroller. And you may even have some, some partners to do that with you too, if it turns out like it did this last week. But you can find details about that on the Running Club's Instagram page, which is just at outliersatx outliers atx on instagram if uh you don't want to remember that or feel you're going to forget to remember that and you follow me on instagram at zach bitter i will be making updates there as well and directing people over to the details for the meetups for that so love to have you out there if you're around and join our group also if you enjoyed this episode or the show in general liking subscribing and sharing it with your friends and family goes a long ways to help me grow it also, if you want on your platform of choice, leaving a review to help me grow that side of things, all these things are great ways to contribute. If you're able to do it, I would be grateful. Uh, finally, uh, show sponsors, they can be all found at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. So if one of the sponsors that advertises on this show is something you think that will help your lifestyle Letting them know you came from here is another way to support. You can find all those in the show notes or like I said, at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. And this episode's sponsors include my friends at Athletic Greens and Elementi. Athletic Greens flagship product AG1 is a supplement that contains 75 high quality vitamin, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens that will help start your day right. I like to take one scoop of AG1 first thing in the morning. Usually I'll mix it with about eight ounces of cold water and have that right before my first cup of coffee. I like to take it on an empty stomach because per Athletic Greens, that's the best way to absorb all of those 75 high quality vitamins and minerals the best. So usually I'm heading out for a run after I've been awake for about an hour or so in the morning and I like to have an empty stomach anyway, so that fits nicely there along with my cup of coffee first things first. AG1 is lifestyle friendly and fits into a keto, paleo, low-carb, dairy-free, or gluten-free and even vegan diet. It has only one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and is free of artificial ingredients. AG1 continually updates their product based on the latest science and third-party testing. On top of that, they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020. 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I love these travel packs because they're these little green square packages that lay flat and I can just stuff a few of them in my suitcase. And if I'm out of town for a few days, I know I got that first thing in the morning, 75 high quality vitamin minerals sitting there waiting for me. So if you want to check that out, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You can find links to that in the show notes as well as at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, going to the gym, or while traveling. My go-tos are the citrus flavor and the newly restocked watermelon flavor for my long runs and post-run rehydration as well as their chocolate flavor, which I love to add in my morning coffee with a little bit of creamer. Tastes great, and it's a fun way to start the day for me. If you are hesitant or would like to try out Element first, before you purchase, they are offering a flavor sample pack with one of each of their flavors for free to anyone who uses the HPO URL. If you want to check them out and support HPO along the way, you can head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Links can be found in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter. And today I'm coming to you solo with a listener topic question episode. So I've gotten a few topics and questions submitted over the last week or two, and I'm going to touch on three of them and hopefully help the individuals who sent these in as well as anyone else who's maybe thinking along the same lines here. The three topics that we're going to dive into include a topic around orthotics and insoles. The actual question was kind of a curiosity around like elite level runners and whether they use these things or if it's something that is standard relative to uh, what you see kind of in the general population. I'm probably going to expand this a little bit and look at foot health and how I see things like inserts and insoles working or being used in, in a proper way. Uh, and and try to kind of branch out a little bit from the actual question for those of you who I think would likely have follow-up questions if I just stuck straight to it. Uh, the other, the next one would be, or is, should you always have vert in training or only when the course has vert? So we're going to touch on how to look at vert in training or how much vertical feet you're climbing and, and potentially descending in your training and how that piece to the puzzle kind of fits in to your programming, how it changes if you're doing a flat race versus a hilly race versus a mountain race and all that sort of stuff. And then finally, handling a week off from running mid-plan due to vacation or life obligations. I love this one because a lot of times when I'm programming coaching plans for people, 
we're usually looking at like a 16 to 24 week window in which we're going to be really kind of going through the paces and the training in order to really get the person ready for race day. And you can draw up the most beautiful 16 to 24 week plan. And in reality, you have to make it fit the lifestyle of the person. Even someone who's 100% pure professional athlete is going to have situations that pull them away oftentimes from what would maybe be picture perfect. And we need to find how to navigate those areas with the least amount of impact. And I actually think with things like this, sometimes they can be a net benefit if you structure them and plan for them properly. So we're going to talk about that a little bit and hopefully help those of you sitting there planning out your training and also trying to balance everything else that goes on in life alongside it so that we can take some of that stress off of those things that could maybe pull you away from what you would consider an ideal training week on a regular basis. All right. So first question, uh, orthotics and insoles with high level runners. You know, I'm not sure that there's a data set out there that actually touches on whether elite runners are more likely to use insoles and inserts versus uh, the average person, if I had to guess, I would say it's probably less just because if you're, if you're a professional runner, or if that's like your main job, you're likely doing all sorts of like little things that kind of come along with the training to maintain uh, foot health and strength in these areas. So there's a good chance that you have a lot of resources and a lot of time available to you outside of somebody who is, you know, trying to work a 50 hour week and train for a race and has a family and everything else that goes with it. There's just a lot of like necessary things that uh, would get in the way of possibly addressing these things before they come problems. And then you find yourself in a situation where you would need a tool like an insert or a, an orthotic in order to kind of maintain the lifestyle or get through an injury, so to speak. So if I had to guess, I would say it's probably the lower percentage, but then again, you also have the variable that, you know, professional runners are probably doing more of the set activity. So they may be kind of pushing their limits physically a little further, which could welcome some injuries if they get a little bit too far towards the risk side of risk reward and end up needing or using some of those things. Other thing to consider too, is if you're a professional athlete, uh, likely you're going to be a lot more resistant to taking time off if it's a minor injury. And I think things like orthotics and insoles can oftentimes be great tools to help you navigate that time frame to allow you to keep doing the activity that is, uh, in a professional athlete's case, paying the bills without further hindering that specific injury or allowing them to kind of close the gap between the injury occurring and getting it back to a hundred percent. This is where I see these things. I think a lot of times when people think of inserts and insoles, they think of or inserts and orthotics, they think of them as something that is permanent. Like I hurt my foot or I have low arches or I have something going on with my foot. I need this thing in my shoe in order to be, participate in this activity. And granted, there are going to be a certain percentage of the population of people for whatever reason, maybe they have like a discrepancy in leg length, or maybe they have some sort of thing that's a more uh, chronic injury where just the reality for them is they have to have these devices in their shoes because no matter what they do in, in, in strengthening and mechanics and thing like 
things like that. It's just not going to clear up the issue and they're going to need to use that custom orthotic or something for the rest of their, their running. And in that case, those things are great because this, that opens up the door an activity for that person that they otherwise may not be able to participate in. And I think that's, that's really where these type of things shine. The other area where I think these things shine is kind of what I've been talking about, uh, so far, which is things happen. Um, we push our bodies sometimes past our limit and things flare up. And when those happen, some, some inserts can, can help limit that discomfort and allow you to continue training or get back to training when there's like a weakness in one side or the other, or just when things have been uh, a little bit atrophied after taking some time off, or you're coming back from an injury and you want to kind of baby a specific area. Cause it's behind the rest of your body. I keep a pair of orthotics or not orthotics of insoles around for stuff like that. So like if I had something where I, I tweak something in my foot and that insert takes that pain away and allows me to kind of continue the training while I address that situation, that's a perfect situation. The next question you should be asking though, is what is the removal of that? How do you get away from that and eventually not have to use that or rely on that permanently because the more structure we add to our footwear, essentially the bigger the cast we're building around that area of our body, which is going to reduce its ability to get strong and resilient. So when you think of these things as kind of like casts that are going to help us get healthy again, but not something we want to have permanently, we're thinking along the right lines. So Generally speaking, I think focusing on lower leg and foot strength is going to be a really, really good start strategy to minimize the amount of insole and orthotic use you might need to use over your running lifespan uh, or in general, avoid them as much as possible. So things like doing some lower profile shoes or even some barefoot work from time to time. And you definitely want to look at this as I'm an individual and you start where I'm at. So just like if you went into the weight room and decided you wanted to get stronger in your upper body, you wouldn't go there and find the strongest person in the gym and just say, Hey, I'm just going to follow you around and lift exactly the same weight for the exact same amount of reps and volume as you're doing and assume that's going to go well, you'd get injured. You would be starting way ahead of where you're ready for, and that's going to cause issues. You want to think about your lower leg and feet muscles and just everything that goes along down there the same way. If you're someone who has very weak feet and very weak lower legs, for whatever reason, maybe you just worn built up shoes and things for a long time, and you want to strengthen those, you might just want to start really slow. It might be something as simple as like making it a little more frequent that you're just walking around like barefooted on your socks around the house at first, just to activate those muscles and kind of put your body through that range of motion and let those areas kind of catch up a bit. And then gradually phase in a little more activity once your body has responded and adapted to that. So things like foot and ankle exercises, strengthening exercises and mobility stuff. I think this is where like bands can be very useful. You can like anchor a band to like a door frame and do all sorts of different like foot and ankle flexions to really strengthen those areas. Things like jump rope can be really effective in strengthening feet and ankles, uh, adding a little bit of barefoot or low profile shoe work in. And again, just like walking around and doing the strength process, you want to start very slow. So if you've never done this before and have a, have a history of wearing 
built up protective shoes, inserts, and orthotics and things like that. It might be something as simple as wearing a lower profile shoe for like a like some some strides or something before your workout and just assessing the next day how you feel. If those areas are feeling sore or a little fatigued, let that heal and rest up and then get stronger and before reproducing the that activity again in order to kind of inch your way along to the point where over the course of months or even years you build really strong lower legs and feet and you're able to tolerate uh you know more activity there. So if I want to kind of like generally sum this up, I think the sweet spot is getting your lower legs and feet as strong as you can. Then once you do that, start relying on things like more supportive shoes or higher cushion shoes, insoles and things like that. When you're asking your body to go beyond what it's ready for. So being an ultra marathon runner, this is kind of the norm on race day. On race day, we're sort of asking our body to go beyond what it's really technically ready for from training because you're just not running say a hundred miles in a single shot often enough for you really to kind of like get to a point where your body is going to be like super resilient to that and feel great at the end. So a scenario like that can be great where, you know, maybe in order to make miles 80 to hundred, a little more tolerable, you're going to use things like a little more cushioned shoe or an insert or something like that to protect an area that could potentially be weaker than other areas of your body. So you're not limiting your potential by having one area of your body break down faster than the others. And that's going to be a very individual question. I think like even when we're talking about ultra marathons, you can build up really strong lower legs and feet and be able to tolerate a pretty low profile shoe. Um, in fact, I've done some hundred milers and really like essentially cross country racing flats uh, minimalist shoes and things in the past. So it is doable, but it is also something where it took me about a year to really kind of build up the tolerance to even be comfortable enough to try something like that. So it's not something where you want to just toss out your shoes and grab a pair of minimalist shoes right out the gate or start running barefoot on with, without ever trying it before and, and expect it to go really well. You know, that, that might be like your end target, but be patient with yourself and let yourself like go with it. Eventually, once you do get those strong lower legs and feet though, I think the move at that point is kind of follow the principle of, I did the hard work to get this strong. Now it's going to require less stimulus to maintain it. And that's your opportunity to do what I call like build a shoe quiver, or like, I guess you could include insoles with this, where you have like a series of different approaches that you use for different types of workouts or different points in your training. So for example, I might go and do some short intervals at the track, which I would like to have like a, a light, low profile, real flexible shoe to use for something like that. Uh, then the next day I might be going out for an easy training, like 60 minute easy run or something like that. You know, maybe my, my lower legs are a little sore from that track workout the day before. So I might, opt for like a balanced cushion, more moderate to high cushioned training shoe for that 60 minute easy run. So I can let the area of my body that's a little more sore kind of catch up and maintain that strength that I've developed over time. So I don't necessarily need to be like going out with something that is like super minimalist every day, regardless of whether it's easy, hard, moderate, long, short, or otherwise, you can use what I like to call a shoe quiver with that sort of setup kind of once you get there. So ease into it. Once you kind of built up 
real strong legs and lower bodies, that's going to keep you more injury resistant over time. And then use a variety of tools to kind of maximize your training potential from there. That kind of makes sense. All right. So uh, if, if, if I didn't touch on something in this topic that someone wants me to hit on, shoot me a note, happy to kind of go back and uh, chat about it in a future episode. Um, also, it might be worth, uh, for those of you who want a little more of a deep dive into lower leg feet issues, check out the episode I did with Dr. Emily Schleichel. Uh, she is a doctor who has done a lot with uh, lower leg and feet strengthening and things like that. And we did kind of a deep dive into you know, her take on some of that stuff. So if you're looking for maybe a little bit of a higher level PhD conversation around this versus my opinions, then that would be a great episode to check out. Uh, next question is, should you always have vert in training or only when the course has vert? This is an excellent question because I remember when I first got into ultra running, there was this kind of buzz phrase that would float around uh, targets for training with this, where it was like, look at the race you're doing, see how many vertical feet are in that course or on that course. And that's what you should build up to in terms of how much vert per week you should target. I'm not entirely sure where that came from. If that was just someone's anecdote that kind of spread throughout the ultra running community for a while, or if there was actually some sort of like reason behind it. But in reality, I think it's a little short-sighted. For one, it kind of pigeonholes people into likely a specific amount of volume that's maybe not going to be applicable for everybody. So say somebody who has been running ultra marathons for 10 years and is a high volume training person, yeah, they can probably quite easily hit even a real mountainous course's vertical gain in a week without too much trouble. Now you take someone who's a little bit newer to the sport, following a little bit of a lower volume approach, they may find themselves just like nonstop, constantly trying to look for vert just to come anywhere close to that. So it sort of puts them in a, at, at a disadvantage in terms of having to over-prioritize something that's not even necessarily specific enough to be good practice. So when it comes to vert in training, what I like to do is look at the course profile because the course the distance, the duration, it's the time it's going to take you to, to complete it, the topography, the weather, all these things are worth considering in order for you to directly train for the stimulus you're going to try to perform at. And when you're looking at the vert piece of it, take a look at the profile and just get an idea of like what the climbs look like on that course. Is the course kind of what they call more sawtooth, where you're just doing these short little punchy hills constantly is the course one where you do like long sustained climbs and descent? There's fewer of them, but when you do do them, you're doing them for long periods of time. Does the course have very steep pitches or little less steep or less steep pitches? Uh, like look at that, try to get a gauge of that uh, and and try to build the hill work or the the vert you are acquiring as close to those percentages of grade as you can get. So if you have a course that let's say the average climb is a 10% incline, finding that type of a climb is going to be the most specific. If it has sections that you're doing like two or three miles of continual climbing, 
then trying to find longer stretches of ascent and descent. So you're mimicking what you're going to be doing on race day as closely as possible is going to be the best possible way. Uh, but first and foremost, I think getting the mechanics dialed in at the pitch that you're going to be doing is going to be the number one thing to really think about. And it's going to make it a little more approachable because then even if someone does say have a scenario where they live somewhere where there's just not a lot of options for steep climbs and descents, or like, I should say long climbs and descents, chances are you can find like a sled hill or something like that, or an overpass that has a steep enough climb, or even a treadmill at the gym that has an adjustable incline where you can practice pretty close to the percentage grade you're going to see at the race itself. So you can kind of start with average. You can look at what is the average grade on this course. But then what I really like to do if the person has access to the training uh, terrain available is look at where the major climbs and descents are. Some courses have very distinct ones where there's like three or four very specific climbs and descents that make up a huge chunk of the vertical gain and loss on that course. So for that situation, if you have that, then I like to focus on even the specifics of that. So let's say one of those climbs is 15%, another one's 20%, another one's 12%. And those are the three major climbs kind of cycling through some hill work that matches those three is going to put you in a position where your body's kind of used to the mechanics that you're going to be able to do for that. Not only is that going to benefit just the way your body develops around the skill you're trying to do, it's also going to be valuable in you understanding like things like pacing in certain areas like that, or what your effort feels like at certain paces. And it's just going to help you dial in your race pace strategy and manage your energies and your efforts a little better. So you don't find yourself in a situation where you are two thirds of the way into the ultra marathon and you push too hard on the climbs because you just didn't have an idea of really how hard you could push or should push in that scenario. And then you're giving back way more time in the back end of that race than you gained by going a little harder in those areas. Um, finally, if you're someone training for a flat race, does that mean you can eliminate vert altogether? I tend to think no, in the sense that I don't necessarily advocate that you do all flat running all the time. Even if you're training for something like I do sometimes a 400 meter track where you're going to have zero inches of vertical gain and loss over the course, you still want to follow specificity where you're doing a lot of runs in terrain or on terrain like that. So you're, like I said, with the vert, your body gets good with the mechanics and develops with the mechanics you're going to use that day. But when you're running on flat, you are using a very specific gait cycle and a very specific mechanic that is super one-dimensional. So just for your overall health and injury prevention, I think adding some vert into your training, whether it be like some hill repeats or just on one of your easy recovery days, going out on a more hilly trail area, just to get a little more climbing and descending in is just going to be good for your overall like balance in your skeletal muscle system and likely help you stay a little more injury resistant because you're not just kind of tempting overuse injury by doing the exact same flat mechanic day in and day out. So, uh, I like to try to do that. I, I specifically have an example in 2015, I was training for the desert solstice track invitational where I was going to try to run for a hundred miles there. And I was super dialed in. I was going out to the UC Davis track. I was living in Davis, California at the time. And I was going there 
almost every day and doing just loops around the track. And this is when I was peaking. I wasn't doing the whole training cycle, but the final like six weeks or so before the taper, I was going out there almost every day doing like most of my runs on that track, just really dialing things in from the pacing to uh, the mindset and all that stuff. Uh, but I would take the opportunity almost every Saturday to drive to uh, Mill Valley and run with the San Francisco running company Saturday group run because they would always do a route between like usually 12 to 16 miles that would usually have three or four distinct steep climbs and descents on it. And for me, it was like kind of what I said, an opportunity to practice a little bit of a different mechanic that I think is just going to keep you a little stronger, a little more injury resistant. And also it was a great mental break. I always knew even when I was staring down like a three week block of training where I was going to be on that track for countless hours each week, I always knew Saturday was going to be a change of pace where I could step away from that. I could stop thinking it for thinking about it for a while. And that gave me the focus to not get overwhelmed by like, say three weeks of that work. It gave me a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel and allowed me to kind of begin that next week of training without feeling too beaten down by just doing the same thing over and over again. So that's kind of where my advice would be for that. Uh, but again, if I missed the intent or if someone wants me to dive deeper into a specific aspect of that, feel free to shoot me a note, happy to touch on it in a future episode. Finally, we have handling a week off from running mid plan due to vacation or life obligations. Okay. I love this one because this one is so appropriate for most people. Most people, like I mentioned in the intro, are just not going to have a lifestyle that is conducive to them becoming a monk essentially for nearly half a year and living all around their training and having every week be, or every day, every week, just be a hundred percent priority towards training and maximizing training. So even if that were the case, there is very little reason from what I believe to be training in a way where you are progressively adding more and more every week for 16 to 24 weeks in a row. I much prefer having kind of focus points in your training where there are kind of goals that you're trying to achieve within say maybe a four to six week window and working on those goals before transitioning into the next aspect. I follow a least specific to most specific principle. A lot of times in training where I pick the race, the race dictates an intensity or an environment. I start with least specific things, maybe weaknesses I need to address before I get into the thick of it. And as I get closer to that race, I get more and more specific to what I'd be doing at the race. So if it's a hundred miles, that's going to be a little different than say like a 5k, just due to the intensity of those two events being drastically different. Uh, either way though, usually I'm looking at something like a three week progression where I am going to do enough work in those three weeks where I am stressing my body just a little bit past what it was currently comfortable with so that I'm getting a little bit stronger and a little bit better at that activity. I like to call it micro stressing because that kind of highlights that you don't want to take too big of a chunk at any one time because one, you're inviting injury risk by doing that. And two, if you zoom out in your training, you may actually get less overall volume at the intensity you're targeting if you do too much for any one session. So micro stressing for say three weeks, and then I like to have what I call a deload week. And a deload week is simply just a reduction in volume and intensity for about a week to let your body kind of absorb and catch up from all the stress, all the physical 
wear and tear that came from that last three week training cycle. And then you start the next one feeling a little more fresh, a little more ready to go. I think it's a great way to minimize injury risk. And it's a great way to make sure you are not plateauing due to overreaching or finding yourself even skates, taking a step back because your body isn't catching up or recovering fast enough. And finally, it gives you kind of like when I described doing some hills or trails, even when you're training for a flat race every once in a while, to kind of give you a light at the end of the tunnel. It gives you a smaller target to focus on. You're not thinking like, all right, I'm on week one of 20 weeks. Here we go. And then by week 10, you're so fatigued from everything that you lose interest in it. You always kind of have that like, okay, I'm just going to take care of this three-week block. I'm going to focus on that. I'll worry about the rest when I get there. And you're focusing on getting to that deload week. It gives you a little bit of a shorter target to focus on one that I think is just a little bit more manageable. So here's how this addresses the question. If you know ahead of time when you're setting up your training, I'm going to have a one-week vacation with my family on week 10. Just structure your training so that week's a deload week. It gives you a lot more flexibility. You're able to reduce your volume and intensity. Uh, if it happens to be really busy and you have very little time for running, you can just you can you can set up your training so you're maybe just doing a little bit more than you normally would, not getting too risky, but putting yourself in a position where you know, that you're just getting a little more stimulus that week leading in to that, to that deload week or that vacation week so that you actually want it to absorb the training and use it as a, as a net benefit versus something that's actually going to like stagnate your training or make it less impactful. And I think when you look at it that way, you have a situation in which you can, uh, maximize your training, but still enjoy and not stress out about these things that tend to pop up. And it doesn't have to be a vacation. It could be something like a work trip. Maybe you have a work trip or you're traveling for something like that. And it's just going to be a lot harder to get in high quality work. Well, by reducing your volume and intensity, you're not asking your body to match what it's capable of. You're asking your body to focus primarily on recovery and do just enough stimulus so that you're not you know, getting rusty or like re, re, having a reduction in your, in your, in your fitness quality by you know not moving for a week straight or something like that. Uh, so don't overthink it. It's a very short period of time in the grand scheme of things. You're not going to lose like um, any meaningful amount of fitness. And even if you maintain roughly 50% of what you were doing leading in, you're not going to probably lose any of your fitness during that, then that seven, seven days or whatever it happens to be. Uh, so that's my kind of take on that. I will add, there's no necessarily, there's no reason necessarily to like hyper-focus on like a three-week build, one-week deload, three-week build, one-week deload. You can be a little more responsive to what your body's telling you for that. You know, for me, I usually like plan out a, uh, a ratio of three, three to one like that in most cases, but there's always times where um, I get to the end of say two weeks and I'm like, whew, I'm I, I've, I've maxed out where, what I'm ready for right now. I need my deload week now, if I'm going to continue this progression and I'll take it early other times, it kind of happens the other way where I underestimate where I'm at a little bit and I get to the end of three weeks. I'm like, I can, I can easily do another week. I don't, I don't need a deload week. I'm going to push that thing off one more. So generally speaking in your training, when there's not these hard dates where you need a deload week due to other life obligations, be a little flexible with yourself with it in order to, uh, um, be able to just, you know, kind of actually listen to your body and make sure you're, you're honoring the amount of wear and tear you're putting on yourself and actually recovering enough to get stronger and better because your body does not care about the plan you laid out. If it's ready for rest, it's ready for rest. If it's ready for stimulus, it's ready for stimulus. So I think 
uh, you know, using any biomarkers that have been useful for you to determine your level of fatigue, as well as just listening to yourself and just trying to recognize things like, am I feeling like more tired than normal? Is my pace getting slower at a given effort? Uh, and, and things like that can usually be signs that you're kind of getting up to that edge where you need to kind of step back for a little bit and let everything catch up. All right. So those are the three questions we're going to hit on for this episode. If you have questions you'd like me to discuss or topics you'd like me to discuss on a future episode, feel free to shoot me a note. You can reach out to me at hpopodcast at gmail.com, or you can shoot me a note on any of my social media platforms. You can find me at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, at ZBitter Endurance on Facebook. You can also head over to my website, ZachBitter.com, and shoot me a note over there. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are Athletic Greens and LMNT. You can find links to those in the show notes and at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Take advantage of Athletic Greens free one year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs and LMNT's sample pack.